Last week, I began the message with reminding us of how we tend to feel about times of waiting. There is no shortage of ways to illustrate that. You don't bring your car for a 15-minute oil change hoping it'll be an hour. You don't get really excited when you call for a time-sensitive doctor's appointment in the month of May, and they tell you, no problem, we got a spot open for you in December. Been there. <laughs> You're not like, yes, I was hoping I would have to wait. We're not fans of waiting. That's why there's so many illustrations of that for us. We, we live it out day after day, and we know we're not fans of waiting, but God has wired waiting into His world. I mean, those who are younger can wish that they were older, can't hasten it. Just like you could want evening to come. Can't hasten it. Hasten it. It'll come when it comes. Just like morning will come after when it comes. God is wired waiting in His world. Into His world. Now sure, you could flick a light switch on and off in your house, but you lack the capacity to do that with the sun. You just have to wait. And we see in the Scriptures that waiting is likewise an often observed part of God's plan. In Old Testament examples like Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, they are some quickly recalled examples of people who had to wait. I think a particularly instructive New Testament example can be seen in Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead. I mean, if you just read slowly through John chapter 11, you can kind of, if you, if you think about it, feel the tension of what was going on there. I mean, when you read John chapter 11, verse 6, they were told, so when he, speaking of Jesus, when he heard that Lazarus, that he, Lazarus, was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, if you put yourself in the sandals of the apostles, perhaps Mary or Martha, perhaps even Lazarus, you would think and you would hope that Jesus, upon hearing that Lazarus was sick, would hasten. He's sick. He's not doing well. Hasten. Get there as quick as you can. Why the waiting? Why not hastening? After all, if you read 2 Kings chapter 4, you'll see when the Shunammite woman goes to see the prophet Elisha, he sees her from a distance and he tells his servant Gehazi, please run now to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? So upon knowing that she was coming, he wants Gehazi to make haste. Go find out if something's wrong. And I think a lot of times we wish that God would act like that. I need help. Hasten. Just run over to help me. And a lot of times we don't understand why he doesn't in the way we want him to. But I think if you went through John chapter 11, it provides a little bit of a paradigm, some guardrails to guard your thinking in moments of waiting when God's not doing what you would want Him to do, when He is not intervening the way you would want Him to intervene. Interestingly, what I just read to you was John chapter 11, verse 6. But I think the two verses right before provide guardrails for our thinking, a kind of paradigm of how we should think when we're in seasons of waiting. In John chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So one guardrail. For the Christian, there is a context to your suffering and your waiting. It's not needless. There's purpose there. The overarching purpose, the greatest purpose, should be the glory of God and the glory of the Son of God. 
I mean, that'll change things. If you go through seasons of waiting and you want help and you want intervention and you don't understand why God hasn't acted in a way that you want him to act yet, but you know that you, being loved by God, being in Jesus Christ, you know nonetheless this is working out for his glory. There's purpose in your waiting and even in your suffering. But then when you look at the very next verse after that, you're told, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So not only was the waiting not needless or pointless or wasteful, it was not disconnected to the outworking of God's love and affection for those involved. Then you get to John 11, verse 6. Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, and he waits, and he doesn't go right away. So what are the guardrails? God's glory. He's working out something for his glory and for the glory of his son, and it's not disconnected to the love and the affection that he has for his people. I think that's so important for us to know. And with a little bit of that introduction and a little bit of pastoral application to the subject of waiting, we come to Acts chapter 1 once again to a passage that was a waiting period. It's the interval between the ascension and the day of Pentecost. It was a period of waiting, but not without purpose. There was a purpose to the waiting. Before Pentecost could come, particular preparation needed to be made. Now, just to remind us of where we were last week as we make our way into the text, I just want to very briefly create some context. We saw last week in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, that the apostles rendered to the Lord Jesus swift obedience. They made haste to obey him. Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And what did they, they do after he ascended? They go, after hearing from the angels, they go and they make haste to go to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Luke then provided us with the names of the 11 apostles who were there in the upper room. We see that in verse 13. And then he helped us to see what was characteristic of their waiting time, the beginning of verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer. And I won't rehearse what I said last week, but we do see some important markers there of what prayer should look like in the life of a local church. It was corporate prayer. Beginning of verse 14, these all, these all, they were together. They were praying corporately together. It was consistent. These all continued. It wasn't a, you know, once in a while kind of thing. It was a thing they were given to. And we would see, uh, even as we go through the book of Acts, we will see how this was a characteristic that marked the church, not just in the interval between the Ascension and Pentecost. It was something that marked them as the church. And we'll see that said explicitly, and we'll see implicit examples of that. And also, it was unified. These all continued with one accord. And part of me would love to park there again, because there's so much to be um, taken from those verses. But with that being said, let's pick up in the second half of verse 14. In the second half of verse 14, Acts chapter 1, I'll read from the beginning of verse 14, but we'll start in the second half of our uh, study today, second half of the verse. These all continued with one accord, or one purpose, or one mind. In prayer, and as I noted last week, in prayer is not found in uh, earlier manuscripts. But these all continued in prayer and supplication, or supplication I should say isn't found in earlier manuscripts. With the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So here we are, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
Okay, so the apostles weren't alone. They were with others. Who were the others? Well, there were a lot of others, as we're going to find out shortly. There was 120 about total, but some of the others included the women. These women likely included Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Clopas, Salome, perhaps Mary and Martha as well. And as Luke will note, Mary the mother of Jesus. I want to stop here for a moment because if you go through the Gospels, you see that these women are just amazingly consistent disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazingly consistent. And I would say, unlike the world, which will encourage its own in the belief that a people of a particular gender or ethnic group are to find encouragement and instruction from their own gender group or ethnic group, I think Christians ought to hear the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 22, and see an extended application right here. All things are yours. I would say that to the men. I would say, men, you are to find encouragement not only in the example of the apostles, but you could find encouragement in the example of these godly women, as I tell you a little bit more about them in a the moment. And I would say to the women in the church that you could find encouragement in your walk with Christ, not only by looking at the women, but also by looking at the apostles. See, unlike the world, which will say, make sure you look back in history, you look back in in life, and you just draw from examples of your own gender or your own ethnic group. But the Christian mentality is no. Kind of drawing from that principle in 1 Corinthians 3.22, all are yours. The example of David is for men and women alone in the body, men and women both in the body of Christ. The example of Esther is for men and women both in the body of Christ. The example of these godly women are for men and women in the body of Christ. And I would say, yes, there are distinctions of roles and functions between men and women, but there is nonetheless a shared calling of godliness. And these women are examples of that. We have no record of any of them denying Jesus. Not Mary Magdalene, not Mary the wife of Clopas, Lomi. We have no record of them betraying Jesus or fleeing from Jesus. Rather, when you go through the gospel accounts, we see that they are shown to be steadfast disciples who faithfully supported Jesus' ministry. Look at the opening three verses of Luke chapter 8. They were present during His crucifixion. They were there at the tomb the morning of His resurrection. They were the first to see the resurrected Christ. And it should be no surprise that they were up there in the upper room waiting and praying in the interval between the Ascension and Pentecost. These are godly women. And their example is seen in the Gospels rather clearly. And I would say, just as a word of pastoral counsel uh, to the women in this assembly, I would say as a kind of aside, please know that the world in which you live in will celebrate famous women throughout history, Authors and poets, aviators, abolitionists, freedom fighters and monarchs, without dedicating much ink to faithful daughters or to unmarried women who walked in sexual purity, to wives who loved their husbands faithfully, or to mothers who loved their children, taught their children, cared for them, and disciplined them. But although the world might perceive such achievements as simply evidence of oppressive patriarchy or the waste of what could have been more labor capital, be assured that such achievements are recorded in the annals of heaven by the God of glory. Back to the text. 
Uh, the last woman that is listed here is Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last reference to Mary in the New Testament. There she is in the upper room. This amazing godly woman. Godly example in many ways throughout the scriptures. There she is as a disciple. As one who believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah and Savior who died and rose again for her sins as well. Her spirit rejoiced in God, her Savior. And Jesus was to be called a Savior because He would save His people from their sins. You go through the examples of Mary in the Scriptures and you will not find her identified as a mediatrix. Like the Catechism of the Catholic Church calls her in paragraph 969, which basically means a female mediator. The Bible tells us there's only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. You won't find her referred to as the Queen of Heaven. You won't find her referred to as the source of holiness as she is in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2030. Maybe some of you just never even knew that. Maybe you never heard that. Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 2030, says, from the church, he learns the example of holiness and recognizes its model and source in the all-holy Virgin Mary. Its model and source of holiness? It's not mean to call that blasphemy. Church, that's blasphemy. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, she's called, in paragraph 2677, she's called the All-Holy One. I mean, you just go through the Scriptures, that's the kind of language that's used with respect to God and Christ. Yet it's attributed to Mary. Yahweh is called the Holy One of Israel, 2 Kings 19.22. He is the one whose name is holy, Isaiah 57, verse 15. Who is majestic in holiness, Exodus 15.11. And no one is holy like Him, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2. Fittingly, the Son who shares the nature of the Father is identified as the Holy One. Acts chapter 3, verse 14, even as unclean spirits knew that He was the Holy One of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 24. So to call Mary the All-Holy One is indeed blasphemous. She doesn't bear those titles. She's there, right there. This is the last reference to her in the New Testament. Godly example. A godly woman who is an example to all believers in many ways. She's not a mediatrix. She's not a female mediator. She's not the queen of heaven. She would would hate that she's being called these things. She's not the source of holiness. She's not the all-holy one. She's called the mother of Jesus. She's there praying. She's not being prayed to. She's there as a believer praying with the rest. And there, after, we see uh, who else was there. Not only the women, not only Mary the mother of Jesus, but also Jesus' brothers. The text reads, and with his brothers. We see their names in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. There we see their names, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. In the seventh chapter of John's Gospel, at a point in time that was about eight months before this occasion in the upper room, John wrote, For even his brothers did not believe in him. John chapter 7, verse 5. As a matter of fact, Mark had written in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, that his family had said, 
to quote from the ESV, he is out of his mind. So Jesus' brothers, for a time, during his earthly ministry, did not believe in him. When did they come to believe in him? Well, the most likely answer is after his resurrection. Because when you look at the resurrection appearances in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, James, and that's believed to be James the Lord's brother, received a resurrection appearance of his own. So what likely happened is the resurrected Christ appears to his unbelieving brother James, and then the other brothers apparently come to faith in Christ as well, and they are there in the upper room praying, waiting for the day of Pentecost. James, as many of you know, would become a pillar in the church. He would become the leader of the Jerusalem church. He appears to have been the author of the epistle that bears his name, even as the Lord's brother Jude, or Judas, appears to be the author of the epistle that bears his name in the Scriptures. And although we don't know the details of Joseph and Simon, we do know from this verse that they were believers, heeding Jesus' command and waiting together for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now that brings us to the closing section, verses 15 through 26. Now, you're going to see the explicit purpose for this interval of waiting. We see that in these verses. But we'll begin in verse 15 where we read, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, or in the midst of the brethren. Altogether the names, the number of names, was about 120. And said, So in those days, in between Ascension and Pentecost, Peter stood up, fitting that he would, He was essentially the first among equals, a kind of spokesman, a kind of leader among the apostles. And here he stood up in the midst of the brethren, in the midst of the disciples, and we're told that there was about 120 of them. It's neat to imagine who was in this 120 group. We just know a little bit. We know the 11 apostles were there, the women were there, we know the Mary mother of Jesus was there, Jesus' brothers, but there was about 120 Some among the 70, perhaps. Lazarus, perhaps. We know that Jesus appeared in one of his post-resurrection appearances to 500 of the brethren at one time. So this is but a sampling. A sampling of those who had seen the resurrected Christ. And there they are. About 120. Now there are interesting things that can be said about the 120 figure. Um, Some things far less convincing um, than others. But some things that are just worthy of reference, I think, is... John Gill, for instance, noted that, quote, this was a number pretty famous among the Jews. I went on to call it a requisite for a Sanhedrin in any place. Sanhedrin were the Jewish religious leadership. So that 120 number was a number that was a requisite for the Jewish um, leadership in a place. So that's interesting. Um, in Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 12, we know that there were 120 priests who sounded trumpets, along with others. They weren't the only people that were there, but they sounded trumpets, along with others singing and other instruments playing, that was a preface to the Lord filling Solomon's temple with glory. You can see that in Second Chronicles chapter 15, verses 12 to 14. I'll just be honest with you, I do not see any definitive dots to connect. I think it's interesting to note how the number 120 is used. Some of you might be thinking of Genesis 6. Right? That the Lord, in his patience, waited 120 years before the flood was going to come. I don't see any definitive dots to connect. What we do know is there was about 120 people in that room. And you might think, and for a church our size, you might think, wow, that's a lot. Um, some of you might think, well, that's not really that many. 
It was a rather small group of people in comparison to the population, but it's interesting to think that Jesus was going to begin building his Pentecost and post-Pentecost church through 120 people. That's where it was going to begin. Now, I think that it was during this time that what's likely happening in between Ascension and Pentecost is that the scriptures are being considered, perhaps discussed, perhaps searched, as the apostles are wondering, what do we do about Judas's vacancy? And the Lord brought clarity to that question. So Peter begins to address the matter in verses 16 and 17 where we read, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, just some observations here, because Peter's saying a lot. He's saying a lot with two verses. First, notice that Peter shared Jesus' doctrine of Scripture. Look at the beginning of verse 16. Men and brethren, this Scripture had to be fulfilled. Jesus said, John chapter 10, verse 35, the Scripture cannot be broken. When Jesus was arrested, he said, I was with you in the temple teaching daily, and you did not seize me, but the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Mark 14, 49. Plenty, plenty of other references could be given. The Scriptures are not guesswork. They are the prophetic word of the living God, and every prophecy must be fulfilled. Application for you as a Christian. Don't just tip the cap to that. Make sure that that view is truly yours as well. That you view the Scripture with such assurance, knowing that the Spirit-inspired origin ensures the fulfillment of every word that's spoken in due time that is prophetic. Second, look at Peter's doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. How did Scripture come to be? Peter affirms that David did not write of his own accord or volition. Rather, the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David. So this is part of this apostle's spirit-inspired explanation of how the scriptures come about. Jesus shared the same view. Look at Matthew 22, verse 43, for instance. And don't miss the theology lesson here. If somebody asks you, where did the scriptures come from? A simple answer could be found in the language that Peter uses right here. The Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. God spoke through men. He retained their personalities, their writing styles, their experiences, and so on. God spoke through them. That's basically a way to communicate how the process of inspiration happened, how scriptures were written. This same Peter would later write, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So that is our view of Scripture. How did Scripture come to be? Holy men were carried along as they spoke and or wrote the words that they did. And God ensured and so superintended that process so that, to use language from 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed, i.e. all Scripture is the result of God's creative breath. Now you're going to see Peter reference some Old Testament verses, but I want to reference one that he didn't that Jesus did on the night that Jesus was betrayed. 
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he again predicted his betrayal, and he told his disciples that not only did he know that his betrayal was going to happen, but he said very specifically in John 13, 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus is quoting from David's writing in Psalm 41.9. David, in his experience, as he's writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit, appears to be referencing the betrayal of a man by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a trusted counselor of David, and Ahithophel betrayed David in the Absalom rebellion. And Jesus is looking at that and saying, that speaks about more than just David. David was a type of Christ, And you could say Ahithophel was a type of Judas. Even as David was betrayed by Ahithophel, Jesus would be betrayed by Judas. Interestingly, Ahithophel would kill himself via hanging as well. Even as Judas would kill himself via hanging. So you have an interesting parallel there. Now Peter's not going to reference that. Jesus referenced that on the night that he was betrayed. Peter's going to reference two other psalms. But before he does, he quickly references Judas, which was probably important for people in that room to hear. Because some people in that room perhaps thought, what happened here with Judas? How could Jesus choose 12, and yet one of the 12 was a betrayer? And Peter's going to provide some clarity, even as he already has, to say the scripture was fulfilled. This didn't happen by surprise. He describes Judas as the one, second half of verse 16, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. You look through the gospel accounts and you see that. You see that he was indeed that. Judas knew the place where Jesus would often meet with his disciples. The Garden of Gethsemane was that place. We're told in the gospels that Jesus often met there with his disciples. John chapter 18, verse 2. Judas, knowing that, brought the detachment of troops and officers of the chief priests and Pharisees. They came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And he was a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He knew where to find Jesus, so he brought them there. Peter also states, he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And it's a reminder that Jesus chose Judas. He was numbered with the apostles and his selection wasn't a mistake. Remember what Jesus said during his earthly ministry. John chapter 6, second half of verse 70 into verse 71. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. You might ask the question, and why did Jesus, knowing that, choose him? And the easy answer, what we see here in Acts chapter 1, is because the scripture needed to be fulfilled. David was a type of Christ. Ahithophel was a type of Judas. And in God's prophetic outworking of history, the Son of Man, the Son of God, was going to be betrayed even as David was. Scripture needed to be fulfilled. And God sovereignly, sinlessly superintended the volitional choices of Judas. God did not make Judas sinful. Christ did not make Judas betray him. Judas did that. Judas loved money. He was a thief. He was a treasurer within the apostolic band, and he kept pilfering from the money. He was an unrepentant thief all the way through, betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
Jesus didn't make him sinful. Jesus didn't make him betray him. He was a sinner by nature and he was a sinner by choice. He freely chose to betray Jesus. But I think we can add to that. Why was Judas chosen among the twelve? That's the clear answer. That's the definitive answer. There are some supplementary points I think we can make as well. Think of how powerful the testimony is of Judas. After he betrays Christ, gets 30 pieces of silver, but then he's tormented in his conscience. And then he goes back to the religious leadership, throws back the 30 pieces of silver, and then he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Word spoken not long before he would hang himself. And if there, were, if there was anyone who had an inside scoop, some dirt on Jesus, you would think it would be Judas, among the other apostles as well. But he would even say, I've betrayed innocent blood. It's amazing the testimon- testimonies to Jesus' innocence strewn throughout the New Testament, whether it's somebody like Pilate saying, I find no fault in this man, or somebody like Judas saying, I've betrayed innocent blood. This man was a pretender for about three and a half years, yet he could levy no allegations or provide no damaging inside information. He was a pretender, a thief, a betrayer, and he was brought to remorse. But he wasn't brought to repentance by betraying the one that he considered innocent. He said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood, but he didn't show show repentance towards God or faith in Christ. It was godly sorrow, ungodly sorrow, that didn't work repentance. One other thing I think we should note, it's kind of startling to us when we think about it, uh, to use language from John Gill regarding Judas, he preached and baptized and wrought miracles, and besides all this, carried the bag, was the treasurer, and a sort of steward in Christ's family and provided for it. Judas is a warning. Judas is a warning to every one of us. Because he was so close to the Lord in proximity, but he wasn't close to the Lord in reality. He did ministry while he remained an unrepentant thief. He preached Jesus while he didn't truly believe in Jesus. So I think Judas is a warning to the churchgoer that thinks the proximity principle applies to salvation. He's a warning to the unrepentant. That no matter how close you think you are to Jesus, your obstinate refusal to repent and to turn from unabated rebellion witnesses to how far you actually are. I could be around the things of God, hear the things of God, participate in the things of God, but if you are participating in unrepentant rebellion, you're much further than you realize. Judas is a warning. At the same time, the good news is, no matter how far you are, you're always one step away from, by the grace of God, turning towards God in repentance and saying, I'm sorry, no more duplicitousness, no more unabated rebellion. I believe your son died for my sins, and I trust in him alone for salvation. I do think there's a much smaller percentage of Christians, this is my opinion, a much smaller percentage of Christians who feel condemned because of the light that they've sinned against prior to coming to Christ. They liken themselves to Judas, even though unlike Judas, they've turned from sin. They're not continuing to hold the money bag, even 
um, as Judas did and continued to pilfer it. There has been like a change, a turning to Christ, yet they esteem themselves of being outside of Christ because their sin wasn't done in a far country, so to speak. It was done in the Father's house, if you will. And so they imagine themselves in this kind of indefinite way to be a Judas, even though they're not Judas. They've turned from sin. They've sinned against light, yes, but God saved them from that hypocrisy. Maybe they're such in this place even today. I want to remind you that Christ welcomes sinners from all spheres of sin. The pretender and the pagan alike receive full pardon of sin when they come to Jesus. I don't know what sphere you might still be in, yet alone the ones that some of you have come from. But I do know this. Jesus welcomes sinners from the metaphoric north, south, east, and west. Whatever your history is, whatever your pedigree is or is not, you come to Christ and you receive a full pardon. You may have sinned in great darkness or you may have sinned against great light, but in Christ there is great forgiveness. See, Judas's problem is he pretended till just about the end. And when the pretending did stop, his true colors showed and the leopard spots never changed, to use language from Jeremiah 13.23. Now, just to extend this a little bit further, a little bit of application further, just please be reminded, you don't have to be a Judas to betray Christ. Right? In what ways are you tempted to betray Christ? Personalize it. Again, you don't have to be a Judas to be tempted to betray Jesus. What is actually tempting you on somewhat of a regular basis? To betray Jesus Christ. I think it's worth thinking about. Because no matter how far you come along in the Christian life, you'll always have sin to turn from. You'll always have things to repent of. Now we come to what appears to have been an editorial note from Luke, inserted amidst Peter's speaking. In verses 18 and 19 we read, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, or the reward of unrighteousness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. So the reason why some translations have these verses bracketed is because it does appear to be, I would argue, it appears to be an editorial note as Luke is writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Don't forget, Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, particularly a man by the name of Theophilus. So he's providing some commentary in there so that Theophilus would know some things that he wouldn't know that Peter's hearers would know. Peter's hearers were definitely well aware um, that Akeldama referred to a field of blood. They knew that. This is one of the, um, one of the evidences, one of the many evidences that Luke wrote the book of Acts because Luke was a Gentile. And when he's writing to Theophilus, he refers um, to this field in such a way as to say they called it in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. He's writing as one Gentile to another, providing some clarity of the Aramaic language. So that's a little bit of a note there for you. Um, field of blood. This was called the field of blood, the place where Judas um, hung himself, possibly because of the blood money that was used to purchase it, possibly because Judas's blood stained the ground. Perhaps both are in view. 
Now next, when Luke wrote, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, he is making reference to how the money Judas received before betraying Jesus, the 30 pieces of silver, was used to purchase the field that became known as the field of blood. If you go through the account in Matthew's gospel, you might remember that Judas throws the money to the, um, the religious leadership. He threw it back at them. And they used that money to purchase the field where Judas would be buried. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 7. It appears they, not wanting ownership, if you will, of the blood money, executed, if you will, Judas's purchase with Judas's money. It's possible, some suggest that maybe Judas entered into some arrangement for the field prior to giving the money back. That might have happened. I think one commentator well noted, quote, that an action is sometimes said in the scripture to be done by a person who was the occasion of doing it. One example he provided was Genesis 42, 38. Great example. Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. I would call your attention to the sad trade-off that this was. Judas had a place, a portion among the apostles, a place in that ministry, but he traded it for 30 pieces of silver. Money for a field. And I think for us, we ought to be reminded of how we have this fallen proclivity to do things like that. We see it in the scriptures, trading birthrights, a birthright for a pot of soup. We're warned against trading our soul for the world. Be careful when choices are presented to you and you could trade fidelity to Christ for the momentary, fleeting pleasures of sin. Now third, some of you have probably noted that some people think that there's a discrepancy between how um, Judas is said to die in Matthew's Gospel versus what's accounted for here. I don't think there's much of a mystery and I don't think there's a discrepancy at all. I think both texts are clearly complementary. Matthew tells us that Judas hung himself, Matthew 27, verse 5. And here Luke tells us that, quote, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails, or intestines, gushed out. So at some point after Judas hung himself, some point after he did that, his body fell to the ground, and his entrails gushed out. Either he hung himself, and sometime after the hanging, his body became bloated, a branch perhaps likely broke, and when he fell headlong, he hit the ground and his eternal organs came out. Another possibility is that Judas hung himself near a cliff that the field overlooked, and again, a branch likely broke, and when he fell headlong, he hit jagged rocks below, and again, his entrails gushed out. Regardless, both Matthew and Luke's accounts are clearly complementary. And if you were to ask, well, why did they even communicate it in different ways? Well, because God superintended the writing to do that. Like, that's what God wanted. But if you were to say, okay, I get that. God's sovereign and he superintended the writing to do that. But is there any reason why that would be the case? And I think the best hypotheses would be Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. And a Jewish audience would readily understand that self-murder, that suicide was a serious sin. And they would consider it horrific. The Gentile world, generally speaking, not as much. Not as much. So perhaps Luke, knowing that his initial audience was Gentile, provided some of the details that Matthew didn't provide, so as to perhaps ensure that the description of Judas's gory end would communicate the tragic ending of Judas and his betrayal of Christ.
Now, this all leads up to why this interval was happening. This interval was happening, this interval between Ascension and Pentecost, so that a 12th apostle could be chosen. So if you say, why the waiting period? There's praying going on. Was that purposeful? Of course. There are people gathering together in this upper room for Pentecost. Was that purposeful? Of course. But the explicit reason for this waiting period was so that Judas's office that was vacated would be fulfilled. Now, Judas's office wasn't vacated simply because he died. His office was vacated because he committed apostasy. You'll note as you go on in the book of Acts, when James dies in Acts chapter 12, the church doesn't say, okay, James died, we need to find another apostle. There's no need to do that. There needed to be 12 for the day of Pentecost, and then when the apostles died after that, they did not need to replace them. But Judas vacated his office via apostasy, so he needed to be replaced. And Peter goes to the scriptures to argue that. He says in verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. And let another take his office. I would imagine, I can't say this with total definitude, I would imagine that during this waiting period, they are praying, looking for clarity. What are we to do? We think there should be 12. There were 12 tribes in Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, and so on. We, there should be 12. It seems like there should be 12. Are there any biblical texts that will speak to this? And Peter stood up. God had brought clarity. God answered what I would imagine the prayers would have been for clarity and direction, and he took them via Peter to two texts in the book of Psalms. Peter says, Let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. A quote from Psalm 69, verse 25. And then, let another take his office. Psalm 109, verse 8. Both of these psalms deal with God's judgment upon the wicked. David was a type of Christ, and so David's enemies were a type of Christ's enemies. And if you were to say, how did Peter know to do this? How was he sure that that clarity was actually accurate clarity? I think part of the answer is found by looking earlier in Luke's account in the Gospel of Luke. You remember that Jesus, post-resurrection, told his disciples, Luke 24, verse 44, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then, as Luke noted, verse 45, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So they were enabled to better understand how Jesus was to be seen in the Old Testament. And doubtless in this time, they're praying, they're seeking for wisdom, and God gives them wisdom and shows them how Judas was to be seen and how that office was to be filled. And that's what we see here. I like the way the ESV Study Bible notes it. It says the addition of this 12th apostle would complete the new nucleus for the people of God, parallel to the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. Now there's much more that can be said as we come to verses 21 and 22 and in the rest of the verses, I'm going to just briefly make some comments here. Beginning at verse 21 and 22, we read, Therefore of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. I think this is very helpful for Christians in some Christian conversations that happen sometimes after a Bible study. Sometimes Christians will say, who do you really think is the 12th apostle? 
Alright, that question comes up. And then when people ask that, a lot of times they're like, it was Paul, wasn't it? Paul's really the 12th apostle. Now think of what's implied when people say that. That everything you're reading here was like out of line. Like Peter's running ahead and he's kind of being like impetuous and he's getting up and saying God said something that he didn't say. Paul was an apostle. But Paul wasn't one of the 12. He didn't meet the qualifications for one of the 12. Did you see in verses 21 and 22 the qualification for this one who would fill Judas's vacancy? He had to be one who was with them from the beginning of the ministry, beginning of the baptism of John, who had been with them and was a witness to the resurrection. So if you're like, whose name is written on the 12th foundation stone in New Jerusalem? I know it's the 12 apostles, and I think it's Paul. You're wrong. It's not Paul. It's Matthias. Not to give away the story, but I read it in the opening scripture. <laughs> you're like, he's chosen? Yes, yes, he's chosen. So this helps you to understand the qualifications that were there. And Paul um, was going to be regarded, yes, as an apostle, but not as one of the 12. So they choose two. Interestingly, they search among the group and two come to the forefront. They propose two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. Those were the two men who were chosen. In the review, Lord willing, next week, as we enter into Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about these men as we prepare to enter into the day of Pentecost in our text. But I'll save that for next week. So these two men are chosen, but they needed to be narrowed down further. Only one could be chosen. To have two apostles would be having one apostle too many. To have neither of them would be to have one apostle too little. So these two are brought forward. So what did the church do? What an example for us. They did what we would expect them to do. They prayed. Verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all. Quick note right there. That's Old Testament language for talking about the one true God. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. Yahweh searches the heart. But it's also language that's used in the New Testament with regards to Christ. Jesus says in Revelation 2.23, I am he who searches the hearts and minds. So they prayed and they said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. you got to love the ice cream truck music <laughs> in the background. <laughs> Something like the Jeopardy theme song would be more appropriate as we're waiting to see who's going to be chosen. I can't do much with the ice cream truck. <laughs> that, that is a little aside, a little uh, historical note here. When we used to have the Friday night service, it was, like, it was like a given. At some point in the night, the ice cream truck would come around. Um, it was just funny. So reminiscing as I hear that. When you see this here, this language, they prayed and they said, You, O Lord, one of the questions that's rightly asked is, who are they praying to? Are they praying to the Father in this moment, or are they praying to the Son? There's some implications for the deity of Christ, which is strewn throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament alike. And I would say, I think they're talking to the Lord Jesus Christ here. First, they use the address Lord, which is often used for Jesus in the New Testament. Acts 1.6, Acts 2.36, and so on. Peter just used that identification with respect to Jesus in verse 21. Called Jesus the Lord Jesus. When the Father is addressed as Lord, Kurios, a little bit later on in the book of Acts, chapter 4, the qualification of God is also there. 
Second, Jesus is the one who selected the original 12. Of course, he did what his father had apportioned for him to do. Um, But it's fitting that Jesus would select Judas' replacement. So this, I would argue, is yet another witness to the deity of Christ. And if somebody were to ask, can we pray to Jesus, the obvious answer is yes. Yes, we can. As I've told you before on different occasions, I would say, you want to be informed by proportion. In the scriptures, proportionally, our instruction is prayers to pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. How Jesus taught his disciples to pray and so on. You want to be informed by proportion. But whether it's Stephen a little bit later on, whether it's those here um, in Acts chapter 1, you can, of course, pray to the Son and thank him for giving his life for you and so on. So now to decide between the two, they cast lots to see, verse 25, the one who would take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. The word that's used here for transgression speaks of a turning aside, a kind of willful turning aside. And then you have this language here. It's kind of vague, but it's not too vague in what it communicates. He went to his own place. What does that mean? basically means he went to a place that was reserved for him, a place of judgment, his own place. Jesus had said concerning him, Mark chapter 14, verse 21, it would have been good for that man if he had never been born. He went in rejecting Christ to his own place. There's more that could be said about that. But we'll get to the end of the chapter, verse 26. And they cast their lots... And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now you have both of these men. Both of these men were qualified to become the twelfth apostle. But God, for whatever reasons he had, determined that Matthias would be that one who would step into that office. And now when you hear, you know, the casting of lots, you know, the casual reader of the New Testament might be like, they did what? They they, they flipped a coin, basically, to find out who the twelfth apostle would be. You know, the ancient Near Eastern equivalent, the ancient world's equivalent of that. Um, There's a lot of references I can give you. Um, For the sake of time, I I won't. Um, But whether it's the lot that fell upon Zacharias, showing that it was his turn to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord, Luke chapter 1, verse 9, the abundance of instances in the Old Testament of how lots were used, we know in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, that the lot is cast into the lap, but its decision is from the Lord. God is over the details of all things, even things that seem insignificant, things that seem random. So they committed this to the Lord. They didn't do it flippantly. They did it prayerfully. They prayed and they casted lots. Old Testament precedent for that. And the lot fell on Matthias and he was reckoned as an apostle. And that would be the 12. The 11 you saw listed in the Matthias. And there was no need for apostolic succession. This was the 12, and the office wasn't fulfilled, needed to be fulfilled after. I close as we complete chapter 1. I mean, there's a lot of takeaways here. There are so many. I think one of the things that I would say is that when you see the end of Judas, and you see what he forfeited, It's a reminder to everyone in this room, please do not forfeit the great gift of salvation that is extended to you in the gospel. You don't want to go to your own place. You want to go to the place that has been prepared for you by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The one who told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. Judas had remorse over his sin. You could have remorse over your sin. But remorse over your sin won't save you. Looking to Jesus Christ as the Savior and saying, I want to turn from my sin and I look to you, Jesus, as my Savior, as the Lord, as the way, the truth, and the life. And then when you come to the Lord Jesus, newness of life begins. You won't be an apostle reckoned among the twelve, but you will, by the grace of God, be mightily used by God in some way, shape, or form in this life. And then you'll be brought into the presence of God forever. And I think for us as a church, I think one of the things that we learn from this description in Acts chapter 1 is the reminder to have prayer be a priority in the life of a local church. We're going to see it over and over again. The church was marked by prayer. And marked by prayer. Not just because it was a discipline you do because it's the right thing to do. Because they knew they needed God. We need you, Lord. Which one of these men, these two qualified men, who's going to be the one that should step into this office? We need you. It's not just an exercise of diligence. It's an exercise of actual dependence. We need you. With that being said, brethren, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for... Oh, the amazing amount of details and food for nourishment of our souls that is found in the verses that we've considered. Thank you, Lord, that the Scripture must be fulfilled, that the Scripture cannot be broken and that your Word is true. Thank you for the Son that you have sent to die for our sins so that rather than going to our own place as a result of our own sin and the rightful justice and condemnation we deserve, we can go to a place that has been secured and procured by the work of Your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to have the convictions grow even deeper that Peter had, that Your Word must be fulfilled, that Your Word is Spirit-inspired. And help us, Lord, to look more like the positive description of this foundling New Testament community as we see in Acts chapter 1. May we be marked by unified, corporate, consistent, dependent prayer, Lord. We look to You for that and, of course, much more even as we consider this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.